0: I think that all of the substantive questions have to be about legitimacy.
1: I gotta say, like, as an African American, not having the courts to rely on is nothing new.
2: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law, Supreme Court. Thank you all so much for sticking with us through a lot of shows this week. It's a week that has been sad and enraging and frustrating and alarming in about equal measure. Well, Donald Trump will name a successor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Saturday. And no matter who that person is, he's told us, they will devote themselves to reversing much of her legacy at the court. Also, no matter who that person is, Mitch McConnell has told us he already has the votes to confirm her. So what are Democrats gonna do about that in the Senate? Well, we said last show that we would be bringing the sound and the fury to this conversation. So buckle up for a discussion about, well, at least metaphorically, burning some stuff down. Joining us to talk about arcane Senate procedures, tricky confirmation tactics, And the prospect of court reform are Mark Joseph Stern. He covers the courts and the law for Slate. And Ellie Stahl, who covers the courts, the criminal justice system, and politics at the nation. Now, later on in this show, Slate Plus members will have access to a conversation about what in the what is happening with these several hundred election and voting rights lawsuits all around the country. In particular, we're going to focus on what we should maybe be worrying about in Pennsylvania. So if you want to hear that and you don't have a Slate Plus membership, check out how to join and all the benefits that you will reap at slate.com slash amicus plus. You will also be helping support the journalistic work that we are doing at this time. And we thank you. But first, to that metaphorical conflagration with Mark and Ellie, welcome. Howdy.
1: Chaining yourself to the Senate floor isn't arcane. It's actually quite low tech. (laughs)
2: There There you go. Let's just jump right in, shall we? I mean, I guess the nominee is going to be named. We don't know who it is. Does it matter who he names? And I guess if it matters, we can talk about them. Uh, Mark, you want to go first? Yeah,
0: it absolutely doesn't matter who he names because we already know why he has selected this individual. Um, He's really gone on TV multiple times at this stage and stated his chief criterion, which is that he wants a justice who will hand him the presidential election that we are currently in. Um, he has said over and over again that he will not accept a peaceful transfer of power automatically, that he does not believe the election is necessarily uh, being run fairly, and that he will win once the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court uh, make sure that the ballots, by which we think he means mail-in ballots, are not counted. Right. Because he thinks mail-in ballots are fraudulent. I mean, really, he thinks they're just cast by Democrats. But what's the difference to him? So Donald Trump is looking for a Supreme Court nominee who will, in a quite plausible Bush v. Gore-like scenario— Automatically rule for him, nullify as many Democratic ballots as necessary to ensure that he receives another term. That is this man's stated public goal. I could not care less the vessel he chooses for it. This is what he's doing, and we know why he's doing it.
1: And of course, Mark, he's not even making the choice, really. I mean, like, this is—it wouldn't matter um, what Trump wanted because the the Republicans— Um, The the Federal Society, the arch conservatives, they're the ones making this pick. Right. And, and, and they've, they've for a generation have told us what they want out of this pick. It's they, they want a woman to be the person who either ends or significantly eviscerates Roe v. Wade. They want a woman to beard them um, from the constant accusations of sexism that are rife within their movement. They want a woman to be the one to extend gun laws and to do all the things conservatives want to do. I agree with Mark. It does not matter which vessel he picks to do this with. Um, but I will just just remind your your listeners: there's another way to go, and that way is the way that Obama went. Right, like when you have a Supreme Court opening um, in a you know divided country that looks to change the balance of power on the court. The way that the Democrats played it was to find a milk toast moderate, generally you know uh, 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 non threatening vessel, right? Like that. That's what the Democrats played. How did that work out for? Them? Um, um, so obviously. Um, Trump is going the entirely other way instead of trying to find a moderate Republican that would be generally acceptable to the broadest kind of swath of people. They're going in the complete opposite direction to find a hard right fringe candidate um, with fringe ideas, frankly, um, to do Fed Sox work on the court.
2: FedSuck being the Federalist Society. I'm just curious, Ellie, who would that milquetoast, moderate, acceptable to us Republican nominee be?
1: Acceptable to us is probably not the right way to look at it, right? Uh,
2: Okay. there's,
1: There's almost no Republican that would be acceptable to me. Um, but you can imagine, you know, you can imagine the Mitt Romney kind of type of people um, being drug out at, at this moment to present a – and really, if you're Trump, getting Romney out of your way in the Senate is not the worst idea in the world uh, – <laughs> um, to kind of appeal, again, not maybe to me who tends to be on the hard left of these issues, but to appeal to the widest spectrum of – um, of American voters, like that—that that was a possibility. That was the possibility that Obama went with, and so you can imagine, like a you know, uh, again because because the stock has so skewed what conservative legal thought is, um, there are very few kind of popular uh, uh, moderate conservatives. I don't know if you want to say like Paul Clement, like you know Ted Olson, right? Like people think of Ted Olson as a liberal, he ain't right? This is the guy who was on Bush's side in Bush v. Gore. Uh, But Ted Olson, I believe, is a reasonable man um, and a reasonable human. And while I would disagree, I'm sure, with a lot of his judicial policies, that that would be my example of a broadly acceptable Republican lawyer who could fill this spot. Trump won't be in 10 feet of a guy like Ted Olson. So
2: so let me ask you this question, because I... I um, don't want to get in the weeds of uh, talking about, you know, Coney Barrett versus Lagoa versus Larson. I, I just don't think it's useful. But I will say I wonder if we're already being set up in for a trap insofar as like the nominee as of this taping hasn't been selected and I'm getting 10 emails a day blistering <laughs> me for being anti-Catholic or for being anti-woman. I mean, they haven't picked a nominee yet. And already, uh, apparently, whoever that person is, um, is, is uh, a victim. And so I, I'm trying to figure out how assuming it is a woman or assuming it is uh, a person who has made her faith the centerpiece of um, her legal thinking. It's a trap for Dems to engage with any of them, right? Mark, do you want to go?
0: Uh, I don't really want to touch this with a 10-foot pole, but um, it's very obvious that Republicans are licking their chops over the prospect of any Democratic senator saying literally anything about the nominee's faith, particularly if it is Judge Barrett. And we know this because uh, when Amy Coney Barrett was before the Senate for her, uh, her, her hearing uh, to go to the Seventh Circuit, Dianne Feinstein ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, grilled her on her faith and said, quote, the dogma lives loudly within you, which I think was inappropriate, I think was really stupid, and I think was a massive boon to Amy Coney Barrett's prospects to eventually reach the Supreme Court because there's nothing Republicans want more than to be able to play the victim card here. That is what ultimately got Kavanaugh on the court, right? He turned around and said, I am the real victim, and they're going to run a similar playbook. This woman is a victim of bigotry, of Democratic hate, and Republicans in the Senate, you have to stand behind her. You have to unify behind this nominee, because otherwise you will let the Democrats hate overcome this entire process. And that is just unacceptable. We must stand behind our warrior.
2: Right. And and let's remember Clarence Thomas, right? High-tech lynching. I mean, this is, this is an old playbook. But Ellie, I guess I just want to ask you the question. Mark will tell you I ask him this question twice a week and have done so for three years. But is there a way of framing the question about Judge Barrett that says you have written— ex- extravagantly and explicitly about the interconnection between, uh, a judge's faith and the doctrine they produce, uh, is that a problem? Is there a way to frame that question where you don't pull back a bloody stump?
1: Uh, it's difficult for me to answer that question because I don't know who you're talking about exactly, right? Like, I like frame it in a way that you won't get hit, um, on bigotry charges by whom, Right. By both but, sides. But,
2: by, I mean, Diane Feinstein got shellacked by, on the left and the right for a religious test and for inappropriately uh, probing Amy Coney Barrett's uh, writing. So I, I just am trying, I guess what I'm asking is, the hypothetical is, is there any way to ask a judge who has written that, of course, religion affects my judging, does religion affect your judging?
1: I, I, but I think you ask it exactly that way. Like, I... I So, okay, to answer your question, yes, of course, there is a way to do that. No matter how you do that, there will be bad faith people on the Republican side who accuse you, I mean, no pun intended, but there will be bad faith people who accuse you of acting in bad faith, and no matter how you frame it, there will be cowardly chicken livered liberals who are like oh, God, her. What are we gonna do? like no matter what you do you're going to get that from both sides because the republicans act in bad faith and the liberals act with cowardice so it's impossible to frame it in a way that appeases both of those extreme wings but in terms of kind of being able to sleep with yourself at night Knowing that you have done right, of course there is a way to ask that question. You have to ask that question. You have to bring it up because she herself has brought it up, right? There are Catholic nominees out there who do not make their faith a particular issue in their judicial opinions, right? Like Neil Gorsuch is Episcopalian, raised Catholic, whatever. I, I didn't know what religion Neil Gorsuch was until he had already been on the court for like two years, all right? Like, like he at like I had problems with Neil Gorsuch based on his writings. I have problems with people like ACB based on their writings. It just so happens that ACB's writings make an explicit tie between her religious views and her her judicial views. And the other the other thing that's kind of worth saying, I think, in this context is that I don't even care about the religious views. Like, I I've i you know I don't I don't begrudge her. Believing what she believes as a matter of faith. I begrudge her imposing it on me. That that's 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 always the issue. I have no problem with a person who says, because I am X, I believe Y in the law. I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is when you take because I believe X, I believe Y in terms of the law, and you must as well. That's where I'm like, whoa. whoa, whoa. Well, don't 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 tell me why Jesus doesn't want me to have an abortion. Tell me why the Ninth Amendment of the Constitution doesn't allow me to have abortion. Because if you can't do that, you can't do anything for me. That's where that's where the argument is against this issue. And of course, there is a way to frame it as
0: such. But no matter what, Republicans are going to say that you're being bigoted, and Democrats are going to be scared about it. Also, I, I just don't know how much utility there is to asking such a question because the Federalist Society has spent 40 years now building up a kind of secular justification for many extreme rulings that might be viewed as theocratic, uh, for instance, denying women control over their own bodies, uh, rolling back reproductive rights. You do not see judges or conservative attorneys justifying this on the basis of faith, right? They say, oh, no, you you just don't understand. The 14th Amendment does not protect unenumerated rights or the unborn children have a compelling, you know, like there are all of these other things that everyone can raise if they are ever accused of using their faith to judge. And so there is no point in accusing someone and I think, of using their faith to judge because there's always a neutral justification, a neutral response. And like we both, uh, I think, agree, Ellie, Republicans will pounce on it and claim that it's anti-Catholic bias. And a lot of lily-livered Democrats will say, oh, yeah, you're right. This went way too far. I mean, the the issue is, I think, where
1: both Mark and I are also agreeing is that, like, there's no point in engaging at all. Like, there's, there's no point in having a hearing. There's no point in lending legitimacy to an illegitimate process by having a sit down hearing about her issues because it honestly doesn't matter. So, So so wait,
2: stop, 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 because I absolutely was one of the people who said Democrats in the Senate shouldn't even show up for Neil Gorsuch's hearing because there should be yellow crime scene tape around Justice Scalia's seat. And it was fascinating. You know, I covered the hearings and like. I think that the Democrats in the Senate were sort of both there under protest and they're fighting on the merits. And so there'd be lots of like lengthy, passionate speeches about how we shouldn't even be here and this is illegitimate, but also talk about the frozen trucker. And I think, you know, (laughs) if we really are quite serious, it sounds like the three of us are quite serious, that to engage in this hearing on the merits is to bless this hearing on the merits is the tactic to just not show up or chain yourself to the Senate floor. In which case, let me just add parenthetically, you're playing right into Mike Pence's hands because Mike Pence has said we don't need a hearing (laughs) because we got to do this fast so she can decide the election. So this strikes me as tactics go as one of those very clever stunts that I agree with uh, morally that is going to absolutely serve the purposes of Mike Pence more than mine.
1: No, no, no. Ellie? So here here here's my play. You send one person. You remember Republicans for Kavanaugh, they had the female assistant? Mm-hmm. You send you you send your female assistant to the hearing room, not an actual senator because that will make them look bad. But you send an assistant to the hearing room to engage in every possible delaying tactic on the book. You make it ugly. You make every you make that hearing procedurally speaking last as long as possible, but you, the senator, add no legitimacy to the process by being there. You're busy chaining yourself to the Senate floor or holding speeches on the on on, on Capitol Hill or doing whatever it is you do to oppose po- the nominee. But you don't physically show up at the hearing to add legitimacy to it. But you also send somebody to to gum up the works as much as possible. You play both sides in, the, in that in that Fa- fashion. Look, bottom line, if the Kavanaugh hearings didn't matter and it turned out they didn't matter, then nothing matters. Like the like if 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 what happened at the Kavanaugh hearings was not enough to make any to make enough Republicans find a shred of conscience or decency if that wasn't enough nothing is ever going to be enough with these current republicans and so showing up to that sham of because then it's not a confirmation hearing it's a confirmation coronation and there's no reason for the democrats to show up for that
2: mark
0: yeah, I think we're all like going back and forth trying to figure out how Mitch McConnell's going to outsmart the Democrats this time, even though I don't think he's a super evil genius. I think he just always has the votes because the Senate favors white, undereducated, rural people. But uh anyway, you know, the truth is. That I have decided that I do think that substantive questions should be asked at this hearing by the Democratic side, and it could be one single female assistant, and it could be a senator. Um, I think that all of the substantive questions have to be about legitimacy. I don't think they should be asking this nominee about about Chevron deference. We know that this nominee will overturn Chevron deference. I don't think they should even really be asking things like, how do you feel about capital punishment? Like, we know all the dodges. We know the script. Like, we've been through this twice before under Trump. Isn't that nightmarish, just to say out loud? Uh, and so I think that the questions have to be really laser-focused on, like, we know why you are here. We are now going to grill you under oath about all of the reasons why you are here and see if you're going to lie about them. Why did Donald Trump choose you? And what did he mean when he said, I need a Supreme Court justice to basically decide this election? What did he mean when he said, I need the judiciary to throw out the ballots so that I can win? Why is he pushing you through before Justice Ginsburg's funeral, right? He's going to announce this nomination before the woman is literally in the ground. Why the urgency? Like, why do you think you're here? And if the nominee says anything other than to hand Donald Trump the election, then we know that the nominee is a liar and that no one should trust anything this person says under oath, period. But Mark, can I just come back at you for
1: a second? What about the current Democratic Party makes you think that they are capable of doing that? (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Well, that's the problem. I mean, they bungled every step of this so far. Right. What was the statement from Diane Feinstein? She says she's very concerned. It's like even Susan Collins adds more adverbs before concerned. I think that the Democratic Party has been really bad at countering McConnell's moves on the judiciary throughout this entire presidency. But I think that if there is ever a moment to try to encourage this party to aspire to something like doing its job. This has got to be it, right? There has got to be a unified voice, a unified chorus of people saying, Democrats, you are there for a reason. This is a power grab that may destroy the court and will destroy half the entire country's faith in the court, probably forever. What are you going to do about it?
2: We'll be right back. And now let's return to our conversation with the nation's Ellie Mistal and Slate's very own Mark Joseph Stern. So so let me add one other thing, because I I, I think actually one Democrat who's been asking the right questions for years and years is Sheldon Whitehouse. And I think that he, over and above almost anyone, has been just following the money trail, following the money trail and talking about captured courts and moneyed interests. And I think one question I would like to hear asked every single day is, How much did Judicial Confirmation Network put into the ads for this? How much? Like, I want to know about the money. And I understand that the nominee doesn't know that. I know Neil Gorsuch couldn't answer those questions and Brett Kavanaugh couldn't understand those questions. But I'm not sure the American people know how many millions of dollars of dark money is just slushing around in buying court seats. And I think that's a piece of the education. In other words, beyond the substantive question, You know, hey, Josh Hawley says he's not even going to vote for you unless you're going to overturn Roe. Have you you given him confidence that that's the case? In other words, beyond the merits. I also really think that the American public freaking hated across the ideological boards, hated Citizens United. They freaking hate the idea that elections are bought and sold and that they have been disempowered by huge amounts of money in the hands of a few people and i would like that to be injected into this conversation like right quick over and over and over again and if the nominee can't answer then like cool get it out there yeah
1: but see but but what you guys are doing and and, uh, and it's and it's lovely <laughs> <but> what, <laughs> what you guys are doing are still having some hope that something can be said or done to wake the American people up to the travesty and tragedy that is happening um, at the courts. You're hoping that there's somehow through the normal process of a confirmation hearing with important questions from our political leaders that awareness can be raised. And I'm telling you guys that that ship sailed long ago you previewed this by saying this is the burn it down podcast. I'm talking about burning it down. Okay. And I can't burn it down if I've still got, you know, 18 senators on the judiciary committee sitting in the house. I need them outside the house that I am trying to burn down. Right. Um, I give the Democrats a simple, having watched them fail so repeatedly, so often to conduct not just the confirmation hearing, but damn near any hearing during the Trump administration with any level of discipline having watched them fail both in the Senate and the House time and time again to enact some basic uh, probative questioning discipline during their hearings. I'm no longer asking them to that. I'm just asking them to not show up. Just, Just stay away. Don't muck this up. If you want to send somebody, send Pam Carlin to do all your questioning during the hearing. She'll handle it for you. And you guys just do what you do. Go find a camera and make a speech. Just, just, just stay out. Don't, don't add your legitimacy to an illegitimate process. Because what, what the American people are going to hear if, if we engage in the process, what the American people are going to hear are Democrats say this, while Republicans say that, and it's not a he said she said thing. This is either this is legitimate or it's not it is not legitimate we are going to stop treating it like it's legitimate and that's what i need get democrats to do
2: and and just by by way of rebuttal i guess i would say And then, in so doing, Democrats further establish that both sides are the same, and this is a stunt, right? Like, I think there's a way to read the nihilist, it all sucks, by just saying this is why Washington is broken. I'm not disagreeing, Ellie. I I I cannot say that I have been impressed by (laughs) it. how the Judiciary Committee has handled legal um, you know, issues in the in the past, not just four years, but over decades. But I just worry a little bit that fire with fire just means I'm not going to say burning it all down. We're done with the with the arson uh, metaphors. But I do think that fire with fire just drives voters to say both sides are the same. Mark, am I wrong?
0: I fear that you are correct. I guess this is why Ellie and I have reached slightly different conclusions here, because I guess I just still have a little bit of hope that if Pam Carlin goes, and I'm all on board with keeping the senators out of it and sending in Pam Carlin, because the senators don't need any more clips for their fundraising reels, right? Like, just send Pam, absolutely. But ask the questions like, When was last time you talked to Leonard Leo and what did you talk about? When was last time you talked to Kerry Severino and what did you talk about? Let's talk about who prepped you for this and who taught you how to avoid saying out loud why Trump selected you, even though he's already told the American people. I know I sound like a broken record here, but there's got to be a way— to really grill a nominee like the political operative that she is. There's got to be a way to interrogate this person, not about her views on the law, because we already know what they are, and she's just going to lie about the ones that are unpopular, right? That's the that's the playbook. We already know it. There's got to be a way to to exploit the fact that she is under oath to at least, like you said, follow the money trail a little bit and get some clips for the nightly news that aren't just, oh, how do you feel about abortion? Is Roe v. Wade super precedent? Whatever. Like, there's got to be a way to get this nominee either dodging or answering real questions about the terrible ethics surrounding this entire process and this nomination.
1: They asked Kavanaugh that Kavanaugh lied. They asked Kavanaugh why he lied. He lied some more. Nothing mattered. Yeah.
2: Okay. so Ellie, let me ask you this. In the spirit of growing despondent nihilism, let me ask you this. We are now not just burning down the Senate. We are, I think, talking about burning down the court, which is which is fine. And I know you are absolutely it's why I wanted you on the show You are one of the longtime proponents of, look, it's always been this, you know, backward looking, revanchist, white male privileged institution that exists almost exclusively to protect white male prerogatives and like had a good run in the 60s. Thank you very much. But the whole thing sucks. And I know you're there and um, that's why court packing and, you know, all the structural reform is on the table. But I guess I want to ask Because I'm still, like Mark, you know, a little bit of a lily-livered romantic about the court. Well, I'm not going to suggest that Mark is lily-livered romantic about the court, although he (laughs) is romantic about, you know, questioning as having utility in the process, in the Senate process. But I will speak for myself and say I still— have this notion that there's no plan B when Americans lose all confidence in the court. We don't have a backup system of checks and balances and rule of law. And so if we go ahead and say right now, every single Democrat should be talking about court packing, every single Democrat should be talking about jurisdiction stripping, every single Democrat should be talking about doing away with lifetime tenure. I think we're agreeing that the message is the court sucks and it's gonna suck forever right
1: I'm not gonna say forever <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it sucks right now and it sucked for a long time um the the there the, are the, the two kind of issues here that I, I I think are are worth bringing up one you keep saying you keep worrying that the Democrats the voters will get the impression that both the Democrats and the Republicans are the same I would love to get to the point where the Democrats are the same as the Republicans on the <laughs> Right, board.
2: right. I would
1: love to get to the point where the Democrats are willing to fight as hard and as dirty and as scorched earth as the Republicans are because the Republicans' decision to do that is why they have won. Yep. Whereas the Democrats have failed. So so on on, on the issue of kind of ultimate mutual assured destruction the nihilism that i am i guess preaching for the democrats to adopt is defense against the nihilism that already exists in our system right i can't have my side continually kind of resting on the hope of a better future when the other side is so effective at using that hope against us Mm -hmm. right so there are things that we can do that we don't do because we have hope. And McConnell knows that. That's why he's calling our bluff. I mean, to just, just to be real politique here, the only reason, the only reason Mitch McConnell, when staring at the kind of electoral defeat that the polls suggest right now, the only reason he is still pushing forward with this is because, A, he thinks Trump's going to steal the election anyway, and B, he thinks even if he doesn't, the Democrats don't have the guts to do what is necessary if they ever they ever get back in power. Like, that is McConnell's bet right now. The Democrats simply do not have the guts, even in power, to roll back what he has done to the courts. I go back literally all the way back to John Adams, the first person to mess with the number of the Supreme Court justices, right? He reduced the number of justices from six to five after he lost in the lame duck to Thomas Jefferson, thinking that Jefferson wouldn't have the guts to stop him. And Jefferson, as soon as he got in office, was like, guess what? It's six again. And you know what? It's seven now. What are you going to do, John? Like Jefferson did not care about John Adams' nihilism in 1801, right? He, he fought back, and I need the Democrats to fight back, and McConnell doesn't think we have the, the stones to do it. So that's number one. Number two, when you talk about, like, we don't have a plan B if people lose faith in the courts, I got to say, like, as, as an African-American, not having the courts to rely on is nothing new. I mean, we talk about the 60s and we understand the war in court and that was great for the progress of certain civil rights. But from the day-to-day experience as a black man in this country, I don't expect justice when I go to a court. If I got to be in front of a white judge and a white jury with a white defense lawyer against a white prosecutor, I know I'm already screwed. My, my goal is to stay out of the court system if I'm a black person in this country because I know what happens once I get into your white system right so the concept of living without objective justice isn't i guess all that radical to me because it's pretty much the world i always live in it's radical to i think white people who are used to thinking that courts and judges and the legal process is objective and fair or at least it should be but from the perspective of you know other people fundamental fairness through the justice system is not a given and in fact most often doesn't happen. So when we are really talking about the dangers of ruining American confidence or, or losing American confidence in the justice system, I'm kind of like, yeah, welcome to my world. Like th- that that is actually the world I already live in. And again, my goal is not to necessarily change that world it's just to make that world more fair, to win more often than we lose in that world. Because right now, not only is the world unfair, but then we also lose in it. And I, and I don't want that.
2: More with The Nation's Ellie Mistel and Slate's own Mark Joseph Stern in just a moment. But first, let's hear from some of this show's great sponsors. Mark, I think Ellie's point is, in some sense, spot on identifies The problem I've been having for years, which is I feel like the boxing kangaroo, you know, in that I spend so much energy, huge amounts of energy trying to prop up confidence in a broken Senate, confidence in a broken court system, confidence in whatever this like ephemeral notion of the rule of law is that I can't spend my also boxing kangaroo arms. I wish um, listeners could see me doing boxing kangaroo on um, Zoom because it's sad and pathetic as it should be. I just don't think that all that energy then goes into the fight, right? Like Ellie is saying, take the fight to Mitch McConnell because you can't have this two front war where you're trying to prop up the integrity and dignity of the courts and also fight. Mitch McConnell, who's breaking the courts. And I wonder, Mark, if we just save our boxing for Mitch McConnell, break the thing down, hope for the best in the future, try to build up fair the second time and just, you know, get on with it, because Ellie's right. I spend an immense amount of energy saying You know, if I'm Sherilyn Eiffel, and I rely on the courts for the work I do, then like tearing the courts apart doesn't help. If I am all those environmental groups who The New York Times highlighted this week that win and win and win against Trump in the courts, even with Republican judges, like I'm fighting for the courts. And Ellie's saying, and I think he's not wrong, (laughs) that that is an immense amount of energy I am expending on a fight that can't that can't be won if the other side is intent on destroying it anyway. So,
0: yeah, I think you can only fight a one-front war here. And I think the war has to be against McConnell and the McConnellization of politics and particularly the McConnellization of the judiciary. I do not think the Democrats should waste time trying to game out exactly how each individual move might affect the legitimacy of the judiciary, which is something we can't really measure and is kind of subjective anyway. Republicans don't do that. They never have done that. They don't care because they are willing to bet that the judiciary will retain the power to implement its decisions, at least its its right-wing decisions. Um, two little points I just want to add to what Ellie said, which I generally agree with. Number one, if Trump's nominee to replace Justice Ginsburg is confirmed, um, it will delegitimize the court in the eyes of about half the country. If Democrats respond by adding four seats to the court, it will delegitimize the court in the eyes of probably another half of the country. I am not sure, I'm not convinced that any of that will actually affect the court's ability to issue and enforce decisions. Like Ellie said, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson did a back and forth about the courts, right? Changing the size just to futz with the law. People still believed in the Supreme Court and followed it uh, during the Civil War. Right. Congress added a seat, a 10th seat to the Supreme Court so that Lincoln could add a justice to dilute the influence of racist Southerners. And then when Andrew Johnson came into office. Congress took away three seats so that Andrew Johnson could not appoint more racist Southerners to the court. And then when Ulysses S. Grant came into office, they restored two seats. And still people said, yes, the Supreme Court is real. It is legitimate and we will follow it. There have been times of resistance to the court, like in the 50s and 60s after Brown v. Board. But after all of that ended, people still said, yeah, we'll do what the court's order us to do. Federal marshals did not have to be sent into every single state capitol to implement the school prayer decision. Yes, people defied it for a time, but eventually it became accepted law. I mean, it is for now. Who knows what will happen if Trump replaces RBG? But uh even if I'm wrong about this, and even if the delegitimization of the court in the eyes of the public actually matters, and the court loses this magical ability ...to actually transmogrify its words into law. I am not convinced that that, on the whole, is a bad thing. Okay, this is, I feel like, an issue of American exceptionalism... ...where we believe that the Supreme Court has to be all-powerful in order for democracy to function, in order for us to remain a liberal democracy, period. Uh, But literally no other country's Supreme Court is as powerful as the United States. I mean, our neighbors to the north in Canada, right? That every province has a notwithstanding clause. They can just tell their Supreme Court, we're not going to follow your ruling. And that's okay. And Canada is still a democracy. Uh, Other countries have extremely weak Judiciaries that are really sort of bound up with the legislative branch, right? There's parliamentary supremacism in, in lots of other nations where the democratically elected branches are the ones that make constitutional decisions. Can you imagine the idea of people who are actually elected by the citizens making constitutional decisions? That is so foreign to the American experience, and yet it seems to be what almost every other democracy does, particularly those that are thriving as America's is in decline. So I just want to put this pitch out there that I think we need to move beyond this very narrow vision of what a functioning checks and balances system of democracy means in the United States, and maybe look to our neighbors and maybe think about why Justice Ginsburg always said, I advise other countries not to look at the United States Constitution when they are writing their own, because ours is old and creaky and dysfunctional and does not work very well in the 2010s and 2020s. And so, you know, if it's time for a revolution in how our federal system works— Bring it on because it's got to be better than whatever the Federalist Society has in store for us with its judges just implementing the Republican Party agenda for the next 50 years.
1: I make the direct connection between what Mark said and, again, the, the, the black experience and what we've been seeing on our streets since the murder of George Floyd. Right. Like justice in this country is broken and some people bear the brunt of that brokenness more than others. So to the extent that we are right now in a moment where quite frankly, white people are finally willing to at least consider this concept that justice is broken, to the extent that George Floyd's murder has opened some eyes, to the extent that Breonna Taylor's killers uh, getting off scot-free have opened some eyes, to the extent that RBG's death and the willingness of Republicans to manipulate the Supreme Court system to the point of naming her replacement after an election has already started has opened some eyes like that's that's an opportunity not necessarily to just restore things to the prop to the former order which wasn't working for so many people but to kind of think expansively no pun intended and <laughs> creatively about what justice actually is and should look like in this country. So I wouldn't I I I I, I certainly wouldn't hold my fire on that opportunity simply to prop up an old system that hasn't really worked all that well, if we're honest with it about it.
2: Both of you are saying what, you know, Ian Milheiser has written years ago, what Adam Cohen has written this past summer, what Erwin Chemerinsky. I mean, it is not news and should not be news to most people that all of our fanciful thinking about the Supreme Court that's like pretty pretty much locked in around Brown v. Board and forgets everything that came before and virtually everything that came after has actually been the thing that has allowed Democrats both to fall asleep at the switch in terms of organizing and messaging around the court. Like, we still think that we're winning on our side. And, you know, we thought we were winning when we had an empty seat and three octogenarians and Donald Trump running for election. And we were like not willing to vote based on the court. So I think that in a weird way, Ellie, you're describing this sort of learned helplessness that is just cannot be extricated from the Democrats. Very, very fanciful ideas that the court is an institution that protects minority rights in virtuous in good ways that always benefits uh, vulnerable communities. And that's just descriptively not true. So you're sort of saying the thing was already broken all along. And not only was it already broken, but we've told ourselves stories about how wonderful it is for so long that we're drunk on it. And we need to sort of sober up and also realize the dream was never the dream, right? I mean, how do how,
1: how do we understand the progress of, of gay rights, not just in our lifetime, but literally in the last five minutes, right? Um, do we understand it as Anthony Kennedy, um, um, the Moses of gay people, freeing them <laughs> Or or do we understand it as a dedicated grassroots effort to change hearts and minds throughout the country that got supercharged after the worst electoral decision um, uh, in terms of California's Prop 8, that got supercharged after that with gay rights activists and people of conscience banning together to change hearts and minds, including the heart and mind of a Democratic president in Barack Obama? like that to me that is the story of why gay rights has been successful anthony kennedy does not make the decision he makes if popular will isn't completely uh, if anthony kennedy does not understand that he is now standing on the right side of history so i don't think that, it's not like i'm saying that the supreme court decisions were not important and were not you know really really helpful supreme court decisions do have an important effect in our country of legitimizing things that are happening but there are things that are already but my point is that there are things that are already happening right there are things that already have to happen on the ground in people's you know hearts and minds in the polling booth um before it percolates up to the supreme court which then can stamp it almost retroactively with you know with an imprimatur of legitimacy and my theories of blowing up the court loses that stamp of legitimacy like that—that that is what I'm willing to give up, um, in order to stop basically the Republicans from getting control of the stamp, because what they want to stamp legitimacy on, I I think are horrible things, um, and and they are they are unabashed about what those horrible things are. I I, I don't I, I am willing to give up my stamp to take away theirs.
2: So so let me ask you both this last question, which is the one I've been sitting with. I, I think if. Donald Trump and Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham fish their wish, they're going to have somebody seated at the court before the election, and the election may well be decided by a 6-3 court, at which point we just say, that's not a little legitimate court and I don't abide by this decision? Is that where this is inexorably headed, Mark?
0: Um... Does Roberts vote with the majority to hand Trump the election? I think that is a big factor here. If it is a five to four decision where even John Roberts does not sign on and he joins the liberals in dissent and says, this is ridiculous, we are handing the election to Trump for no good reason, and Trump's new RBG replacement joins the four horsemen and says, too bad, so sad, we've got the votes, haha, then... No, that decision is not legitimate and should not be treated as legitimate and should not be accepted. If John Roberts joins the conservatives, I think it's a little more complicated. I think it's really difficult and it's not something I think I can really game out at this early stage. But I don't think that the first response should be, of course, we accept the court's decision from Democrats. I, I, I don't think that they just lie down
2: it's not Al Gore in two thousand. the court hath spoken
0: no I mean I, and think about what Republicans were planning to do in two thousand right i mean they were they were ready to do what allegedly trump's uh advisors are now are now cooking up, which was to just have the Florida legislature declare Bush the winner and assign uh, assign its electors to him an end run around the people's vote, and arguably like around the Constitution, right Republicans were willing to play hardball, and Democrats emphatically were not. that cannot happen again twice in 20 years is just too much
2: and, and same question to you Ellie. yeah one of the reasons
1: why i'm not freaking out about the attempt to pack the court before the election as much as some is that i think we already lost the election on the if it gets to the court we've already lost because i've never thought that john roberts was going to be on our side on that um. Um. Uh, You've already mentioned Ian, but yeah, I think he did a great piece a couple of weeks ago, really detailing how the one thing that we know about Roberts is that he hates people voting, right? Like that—that <laughs> yeah. that is the consistent thread through his entire career. Ro- John Roberts has been an enemy of voting rights through his entire career. I did not expect him to change in 2020. So I already thought we were losing the election 5-4 if it got to the court. The difference between losing the election 5-4 with Roberts. And Ginsburg in dissent versus losing 6-3 with ACB and Sotomayor in dissent is is, is 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 less important to me. We were already going to have to make a decision about whether or not we would accept the court's ruling of handing the election to Trump regardless. If Trump has such a crazy, wackadoodle legal argument to steal the election that he can't even get John Roberts, then guess what? He can't even get Neil Gorsuch. Then then even if they pack the court, it will still be 5-4 because I do not think that there is an argument about voting rights that appeals to Roberts but doesn't appeal to Gorsuch. Like I think those two two are going to be – are going to move as a block. Um, They're going to move as a block, I believe, to hand the election to Trump. But, you know – If in some weird world they don't want to hand the election to Trump, I think those two will move together. So I don't think the actual election vote count – sorry, the vote count might change, but the final electoral conclusion, I don't actually think think changes all that much with or without RBG. I I just – I never did. Now, what we do after a court hands another election to another Republican president by suppressing votes – during the middle of a global pandemic What we do with that information I got some thoughts but but, but but that information I don't think has changed significantly
2: Ellie Mistal is the nation's justice correspondent. He covers the courts, the criminal justice system, the law and politics, and he is a must uh, follow on Twitter. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law and LGBTQ issues and state courts uh, for Slate. Also a must follow. And uh, also um, both of these guys are really, truly helping shape my, as you can tell, boxing Kangaroo thinking uh, as we work through this. Ellie, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, Dean and Dahlia.
2: And <laughs> Mark, thank you so much.
0: Always a pleasure.
2: And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you really for your letters and your questions and your condolences this week. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com. You can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with another episode of Amicus in two weeks. And until then, hang on in there.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.